We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. I, um, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank um, Father Joseph and Deacon Matthew uh, and everybody else for, for their kind invitation to, to come and speak, um, especially an invitation as a Latin, um, despite my long association with the uh, Russian college in, in Rome. Uh, I've actually always been officially canonically Latin, um, but I was uh, very, very blessed to uh, not just attend, but, but serve there. And there were a lot of really smart people who taught me a lot of really interesting things um, about the Byzantine Rite. I'll, I'll make a mention of, of, of one of them. So the Byzantine Rite doesn't have an advent, so um, have a nice day. No, <laughs> Actually, this is not, of course, true. Um, the, um, the Byzantine Rite doesn't have a formal advent the same way that the Roman Rite does. Um, even that is actually something of an overstatement. And so um, the, um, the Roman Rite generally changes stuff from day to day and season to season much more than the Byzantine Rite does. And so we are at the, at the, at the Russicum, we're actually like much, much more conservative than St. Basil's. And so we would basically use the typical psalms at every divine liturgy in every season, except for about eight days in the entire year. And so um, in the Roman Rite, on the other hand, it's the opposite. There are far more variable parts. So um, and this is why when you have something like the season of Advent, it becomes sort of much more immediately evident as soon as it shows up, because all of the parts that change, and there are so many more of them that change, um, uh, refer specifically to Advent in or the coming of Christ in, in one way or the other. And of course, you also have the famous thing about the, the vestments, um, where the Byzantine Rite doesn't have a formalized scheme of this color on that day and that color on that day. We have a lot of traditions. Um, but in the Roman Rite and Allied Rites, um, you have a formal prescription that you have to wear violet. So if you go over there right now, Father Cobb, uh, Father Cobb is, is, is wearing violet vestments. And then today, Gaudete Sunday, you have the rose vestments. And it's the day when, you know, it's rose and not pink. There's no difference. We all know that. <laughs> so, but also things like you don't say the Gloria during the Mass. There's no Alleluia during the weekends uh, at the Mass. So um, the Western Church actually has two traditions about Advent. Um, one, which we'd call a kind of minority tradition, which is that Advent is actually six weeks long and starts on the Sunday after St. Martin. Um, I, I call this a minority tradition because it's now basically done in Milan and a handful of churches in Spain in the Ambrosian and, and Mozarabic rites. Um, once upon a time, it was much more diffuse, but that's no worries. Um, and, and the way it works, and this all does tie in with how the... the the Byzantine Rite keeps Advent, is that um, it's a six-week-long 
arrangement, which represents six phases or stages or eras of the creation. So from the beginning of the world to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to David, David to Christ, so that makes five, and then Christ to the end of the world. And so the liturgical traditions that follow that sort of six-fold division of time put the Annunciation at the very end of Advent. So in Milan, they read the Gospel of the Annunciation on the very last Sunday uh, of Advent. In Spain, they um, celebrate it on the 18th, so exactly one week before Christmas. So that like sort of little extra bit at the end represents a kind of quick, you know, from Annunciation to, 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 to birth. So. Um, but the Roman rite has basically completely supplanted all other Western rites and spread throughout the entire planet. Um, and so its system is now de facto the majority uh, tradition. Originally, the Roman rite had a five-week advent, so it had this sort of same, this, when I say original, I'm talking like centuries, I mean, this is before Charlemagne's time. Um, you have a, a five-week system rather than six, so the phase six, as it were, um, the, the, the consummation of Christ's Marvel universe, um, that phase is represented from the birth of Christ to the rest of the liturgical year. But then in the later part of the eighth century, it was cut down to a four-week system. And this corresponds to St. Augustine's division of time. St. Augustine, of course, the titanically influential figure in, in the West. So this um, corresponds to St. Augustine's division of time into four parts, which is before the law, say before the law of Moses was given, during the law between Moses and Christ, under grace, Christ to the end of the world, and then in peace. And so, um, but the last week in the Roman Rite is very rarely finished um, so this is, the, this is next year, it'll be one, this fourth week. The fourth week will be one day this year. It's, it's, it's a full week. But that rarely happens to represent the fact that the reign of Christ is not yet completed, so the consummation of the world. And, and that sort of eschatological theme, theme about Advent being about the end of the world, is very, very prominent in the Roman Rite. And I will explain to you how it's also very prominent in the Byzantine Rite. And, and all of this is just to say that great rites think alike, that you know, there isn't really much, but by the time the Advent becomes fixed as a part of the Roman rite, there's very little interaction between the Byzantine and the Roman rites. Very, very few people in the West spoke Greek by the end of the 8th century. Every once in a while, somebody learns it, and he's like, wow, this is really awesome. Look at all these amazing liturgical texts they have. Let's translate three of them into Latin. And then it just kind of stops. So... Um, but the really interesting thing about how the Roman rite is arranged is the way its gospels are set up, that they move backwards in time. So on the first Sunday of Advent, it's about the end of the world. It's one of the, um, Luke 21, Christ talking about what things will be like at the end of the world. It won't be fun, by the way. Um, the second week is St. John in prison, and the disciples are sent by Christ to go and talk to him. The third week, which is today, is the beginning of John's public ministry. So you're actually moving backwards in time. And then on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, is the Annunciation, so that's when you start moving forward in time. So there's this kind of, as it were, drawing back from the end of the world to the beginning of what Christ does in the renewal of the creation, and then the motion forward begins again. 
discipline. So um, this un arrangement is absolutely unique, by the way, to, to the Roman rite. In other traditions, it was sort of sometimes copied, but very often wasn't. Now, um, and I point all of this out just because, it, again, the sort of interesting resonances between how the Byzantine and the Roman rites, uh, Roman rite works. Um, so in the East, as I said, there is no formal season of Advent. So for example, the gospel and epistle that we heard today um, happen to be those of the 27th Sunday after Pentecost. And we just kind of keep running through the Sundays after Pentecost until we sort of wrap around and meet the triodion on, on the other side of, uh, of the Christmas season. So um, in that sense, you know, and, and you know, because we don't change the Kerubic hymn, so obviously there's no offertory hymn to change to an Advent theme the way the Roman rite does. Um, but a really long time ago when I was attending but not yet um, serving at the Rassicum, Father Robert Taft, a very famous Jesuit scholar of the liturgy, uh, was still there and still regularly serving and preaching. Um, Father Taft's sermons were... He's this guy. The Italians have a wonderful term for for the Taft um, and, and people like him. It's called a, a sacred monster, monstros, monstro sacro, one of those figures who just produces such an enormous amount of scholarship that he kind of you know sets the tenor of the field for years and decades to come. And, and within the history of the Byzantine right, that is Father Taft's work will will be you know a reference point for decades. Um, Regardless of, you know, obviously with every scholar, of course, you know that in the future somebody's going to come along and, you know, adjust some of your things. And, and, and But um, he will be the sacred monster of Byzantine right studies in English for a really long time. And in one of these um, sermons around the end of November, he said, you know, well, they say the Byzantine right doesn't have an advent. Well, names are names and things are things. And, so, and in point of fact, he talked about first of all, we have, of course, the Nativity Fast. Um, the Byzantine Rite, we have four fasting periods, Great Lent. But then we also have the periods of preparation for major feasts and, of course, the Nativity uh, Fast, which in the um, Slavic world is generally referred to as the term, uh, the term Filipovka because it starts the day after the Feast of the Apostle Philip, which is on November 14th. So the traditional day for the fasting begins on November 15th. And so... Um, and, and, you know, in all traditions, there has been a tendency, you sort of, you start out with, yes, build the kingdom of God, fast our little brains out. And then, of course, over time, it just kind of, you know, falls apart. <laughs> so the discipline in both East and West is in many ways very relaxed, um, uh, much, much more so in the West, unfortunately. Um, but once upon a time, it was the sort of standard custom for Filipovka that everybody abstained from meat, eggs, dairy, fish, oil, and wine. Um, fish, oil, and wine were often allowed on Saturdays and Sundays. And then um, there's an interesting parallel development that both in both traditions, the period has been filled up with all kinds of awesome feast days. And so we have the Immaculate Conception. And then in the, in the East... Um, Every Byzantine fasting period is interrupted by at least one of the 12 great feasts. So the Filipovka is interrupted by the um, presentation of the Mother of God in the temple. But then after that, you have, of course, St. Catherine, St. Barbara and St. John Damascene, St. Nicholas, St. Andrew, so, and Daniel. We'll talk about Daniel. He's hugely important. So... Um, 
And, and so as a general rule, it's become sort of mitigated. So there are now places where, um, even in, monast in monasteries, they'll start the feast on the 10th of December, the day after the conception of St. Anne. Some places will actually only do the last days, the 20th to 24th, the, the days of the forefeast. Um, but it is still the case that December 24th is very, very strict, um, uh, even among people who aren't really all that you know, strict about their fasting. This is also true in Italy. Um, I, I've seen people yell at their children for eating meat on December 24th. What the hell is wrong with you? December 24th. And you have the famous Feast of the Five Fishes, or 15 Fishes, or whatever nonsense. That's, that's a made up little American thing. Um, but one of the interesting things that happens in the Byzantine Rite is that on November 21st itself, the first big feast to show up within the, the Filipovka, um, you start to sing hymns of the nativity itself. And so, and this is in the hour of Orthros, and, and however many compliments Father chooses to heap upon me, I will never be so bold as to claim to understand how Orthros works. So, nor have I ever met a Byzantine who claimed to understand how Orthros works. So there's a thing called a katavasia. Just take my word for it. <laughs> so... And um, on November 21st, that's the first day in which you sing the Catavale of Christmas, and I'll just quote, obviously, the first one. Um, Christ is born, so notice when you're saying, Christ is born, Christus genatai, that's a present tense verb. So it's like we're already within the period of celebrating the birth of Christ. Christ is born, glorify him, Christ from heaven, come to meet him, Christ upon the earth, be exalted, Sing to the Lord all the earth, and in rejoicing, sing hymns, ye people, for he has been glorified. So, and this, of course, goes on. There's seven others. Um, and so, and these also will show up on feasts like Andrew and Nicholas, um, in some traditions also Conception of Anne, but more importantly, all the Sundays. So every Sunday, there is that reminder that we're already within the celebration of, uh, of the Nativity. Um, there's also an interesting custom, which is now mostly an obsolescence. It isn't really done very much. It's a thing called the middle hours, or the mesoria. Um, Byzantine liturgy is sort of marked by the sort of idea that, well, there's a thing that's awesome. Let's do it twice. And so one of which is the, the mesoria, which are repetitions of the first, third, sixth, and ninth hours. So on weekdays in fasting times, for not Lent, at some point, somebody said, okay, just, yeah, but I mean, we're already doing so much other stuff in Lent, so we'll, in the other fasts, we'll have these things called the Mesoria, the middle hours, where you do prime, and then you do another prime, and then terse, and then another terse. <laughs> so, um, and so the, the Filipovka is also one of the periods in which you're supposed to do the, the thing. Now, to be you know, honest, these are, are kind of an obsolescence. They aren't really used very much, except in like super, super strict monasteries. Um, but one of the most important and interesting things about this period, um, which really marks its, its, its character, is also the presence of the Feasts of Saints of the Old Testament. Saints of the Old Testament do exist in the West, but they're incredibly rare. And there's only one that was ever generally used, where the Byzantine Rite has feasts for all of the prophets and a whole bunch of other major characters. And these are not minor events either. Some of them are, but some of them are huge events. You know, King David gets the Sunday after Christmas, for example. So um, 
The first of these occurs, um, all of the Old Testament saints that occur within Philippovka are prophets. And the texts of, of them, which again, we're talking literally hundreds of pieces, so I'm not going to cite more than a handful of them, <laughs> but also have a lot of these sort of uh, themes about the uh, incarnation and the coming of Christ and the manifestation of his coming in his birth. So the first of them, which is um, uh, the prophet Abdias, known as Obadiah in these thoughts. So, um, in the canon of his feast day, we have the words, um, Sing me, O priests, with hymns. O ye peoples, exalt him who was begotten as son and God by the Father before the ages, and at the end of times incarnate from the Virgin Mary. So we have a nice little callback to that sort of eschatological theme sort of drawn back from the end of the world and then moving forward with the, the coming of Christ. Um, there's another very beautiful one, which is sung on both the feast and, uh, for feast and feast of the entrance of the Mother of God. Come, all ye faithful, let us sing the praises of the only all-unblemished one. That's the great thing about translating Byzantine texts, you really have to put your vocab to where all, only all-unblemished. <laughs> because Greek can do this very easily in a way that English in its primitive state cannot. So, even her that was proclaimed aforetimes by the prophets and brought into the temple established beforehand as the mother, and at the end of times, here again, shown forth as the mother of God, O Lord, by her prayers, grant us thy peace and great mercy. So um, we have similar texts um, for uh, Nahum Habakkuk and um, Safanias. Habakkuk is called Ambakum in the Byzantine tradition, which is awesome. I love that definitely because there's all these really beautiful chants that talk to him. But um, you can see that they were inserted as a block because they're next to each other in the Bible and they're next to each other in the Byzantine Rite on December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Um, then we have uh, Haggai, who is called Angaius in, in Greek. And then we get to Daniel. So, um, and an interesting thing about this is the feast of the prophet Daniel is on December 17th, which is also the last day that this Sunday, the Sunday of the Fathers, can occur. So he gets his own feast day. And then, of course, because of this whole Byzantine, well, once it's good, twice it's better, um, he also figures very prominently in the texts of the two Sundays that conclude the season. So Daniel really sort of takes over as the figure par excellence. And, of course, and you know, biblical scholars like Professor Garland will explain to you that Daniel is very much an eschatological prophet. The whole of his book is concerned with the stuff that's going to happen at the end of the world. And in the Byzantine rite, Daniel is really much more the prophet of the incarnation and the prophet of Advent. In, in the Roman rite, it's Isaiah. And so in the Roman rite, um, there are readings from Isaiah in the divine office and in the, in the mass. In, in the Byzantine rite, we read Daniel actually in Lent at, at the hour of sext. So Daniel is really the one who sort of holds the floor among the prophets in, in the East. And that is very much, a, you know, signifies the sort of, the, again, that eschatological sense that Advent is drawing back from the end of the world to then bring us forward uh, from, the, um, from the birth of Christ. So just a couple of quotations from uh, texts in his, um, in his office. This one is very, very explicit, the um, ex apostolar uh, of his feast day. Now let Daniel, the greatest among the prophets, honored since he saw Christ our God, Sorry. Now let Daniel, the greatest among the prophets, be honored 
since he saw Christ our God as the rock cut from the mountain without hands, who is the Holy Mother of God. With him be praised also the three boys whom the divine and ineffable type of the Virgin saved unharmed from the fire of the furnace whereby the world, and, and whereby, let's say, by Christ the world hath been saved. So, um, and I wanted to show you this really awesome thing about Father brought out the icon today of the three children um, in, in the furnace. Um, there's a really interesting way in which also Daniel and, and the three children sort of occupy what we'd call the sort of liminal spaces between the end of the great fast and the beginning of the feast. Um, there are, that's, that one that I quoted is one of dozens of references to Daniel in the text of this Sunday and next Sunday and, and, and of his feast day. And then um, on Holy Saturday, the, the, the whole reading of the children in the furnace is the conclusion of the prophecies. And then we go from that to the, the divine liturgy of St. Basil. Um, and there's a really awesome thing about this, the kind of thing that liturgy geeks like myself really go crazy over, which is that in, in many, many churches, and my understanding is that this was incredibly common in Russia, that um, the, the Russian Empire, um, that they used to build these towers shaped very much like this, which they would put at the back of the nave of the church. And then on Holy Saturday, the cantors who led the chanting of um, let us with gospel let us sing to the Lord and exalt him above all for ages for all the ages. The cantors who led that chant would stand at the back of the church in the little tower. And then everybody else would sing back and forth with them. And then apparently there was like this reaction against that is too theatrical. And there's like all the four of them survive. And obviously a lot of them would have been destroyed in the Soviet period. So um, y'all need to get one of those for him so we can do that. I think that is something we should definitely do. <laughs> so um, Dave, you, I know you're, you're good at carpentry, so you can, you can maybe work. And you have to, you'll have to be in the towers. So. <laughs> um, but it's interesting how that, you know, that, 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 that story occupies such a prominent place in those sort of liminal moments between the end of a liturgical season and the beginning of a great feast, because it shows how the feast itself represents the renewal of creation. And the canticle we say, bless the Lord, ice and snow, bless the Lord, all the animals, etc., is the calling of the creation towards renewal. And that shows how the feast itself is the beginning of that renewal. So um, there are also quite a number of other really beautiful references to the birth of Christ, which are, are much closer in spirit to the Roman advent. They're much more explicit about this is a season where we're looking forward. And on um, Vespers of St. Nicholas, for example, and this one shows up in, in several other feast days, um, we have a beautiful hymn that says, um, Be thou made ready, O cave, for the ewe has come. That's E-W-E, female sheep bearing Christ in her womb, and receive him, O manger, who by his word released us who are born on this earth from our irrational doings, shepherds keeping watch, bear witness to the awesome miracle, and magi from Persia bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the king, for the Lord hath appeared from the virgin mother. And she, in the manner of a servant, bowed down and worshipped him, and spoke to the one in her arms, saying, How wast thou sown in me? Or how wast thou planted in me, my redeemer, God? So again, already by you know Saint Nicholas Day, you're talking very clearly about the coming of uh, of Christ at Christmas. Um, and so then the last part of this um, is that um, on, on 
for three of the 12 great feasts, Christmas, Epiphany, and uh, Exaltation of the Cross, you have special readings in the Divine Liturgy for both the Saturday and the Sunday previous um, and, and, and following. And so on the Sunday before Christmas, which is called the Sunday of the Fathers, um, that is actually unique in that it also has its own complete set of uh, texts for the, for the Divine Office. And then, you know, with this sort of Byzantine habit that once is good, twice is better, um, the idea was that later on it was expanded by the addition of a second, Christmas uh, was expanded with an addition of a second Sunday. So we have the Sunday of the Fathers and then the Sunday of the Forefathers. So, um, but in reality, there's sort of very little difference between the two of them. My understanding is that once upon a time, the difference between them was much more clear and, and, and distinct in that the, 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 the first, the older one, which would be next Sunday, was more focused, was focused in a more specific way on the actual physical ancestors of Christ through his mother. And that forefathers was kind of just a general commemoration of everybody, but they sort of bled into each other so much that now there's very little difference between them really. Um, and, and like I said, both of them have become effectively feast days of the, uh, uh, also of the prophet Daniel as the eschatological prophet and the advent prophet. So this year we have um, the feast of Daniel himself on December 17th and then the Sunday of the Forefathers, which is effectively a commemoration of, um, of Daniel. So uh, happy feast day, big party this weekend at the Garland residence, by the way. So, um, and so here's just a couple of examples of the, um, the, from the Sunday of the Father, the Sunday of the Fathers, the older of the two. Um, it has really sort of, as I said, been expanded in scope to include like everybody. So the epistle from uh, Hebrews 11 begins with the words, by faith Abraham abode in the land. And then it goes on and on and on about all the things that the, the, the prophets did. There's a famous passage of Hebrew, Hebrews 11 talking about how by faith Abraham did this, Isaiah did that, Jacob did that. At a certain point, the preacher um, who, who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, you can ask Dr. Garland if it's Paul. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, at a certain point says, well, you know, it's just, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about this, and I've run out of time. I mean, he literally says that. Um, clearly, the author of the Byzantine Synaxarian didn't think that was an issue. And so um, there is a reading for that Sunday of the Synaxarian in which it goes on. It has like 99 entries. And nowadays, in the fascinating modern world in which we live, sorry, 95, um, you can do a really interesting thing with Word documents, which is word count. <laughs> and so... Normally, a Synaxarion entry is, so, you know, today is December 17th, it's the Feast of the Prophet Daniel, and then there'll be, like, two lines of poetry, which will say something complimentary uh, about Daniel or the other saint. The Synaxarion for the next to last Sunday, the Sunday of the, um, of the Fathers, has 95 entries and a total of 1,600 words in Greek. So... Um, as is so often the case in the Byzantine rite, most of it is in practice omitted. And so basically what people generally do is they read the introduction, which is, on this day, the Sunday before the birth of Christ, we have been commanded to keep the memory of our holy and God-bearing fathers, all those who have pleased God from the beginning, from Adam to Joseph, the husband of the all-holy virgin, 
according to the genealogy as the evangelist Luke accounted in his histories and likewise the prophets and prophetesses and by their prayers the Lord save us. So, um, But then one last interesting sort of parallel about this is that um, as you know of course all of the great, not all the great, most of the great feasts also have a four feast, a day of preparation. But the, um, in the Byzantine tradition, the four feast of Christmas is actually five full days. So it's the longest of all of them. Epiphany only has four. And then all the rest of them have one. And this is very much analogous to something that happens in the Roman Rite, which is that starting on December 17th, so right around the same uh, day, you get the famous O antiphons. And the O antiphons are accompanied by a whole other set of special antiphons, which are said at Lauds and the minor hours. So that's when you sort of really you know, intensify the, the very explicit references to Christ. And there's a particularly nice one that the very first, one of the very, very first texts of, of the Byzantine one, um, let us keep the forefeast of Christ's birth, ye peoples, and lifting up the mind, let us be lifted up to Bethlehem in our thoughts, and behold the Virgin, meditating in our souls as she hastens to give birth in the cave to our Lord and God. And Joseph, beholding the greatness of these miracles, supposed that he beheld a man wrapped in swaddling clothes like a child, but from his deeds, the child's deeds, suspected that he was the true God who granteth great mercy to our souls, and there's always that wonderful way that the composers of these things swing these things around to, you know, saying all these beautiful theological things, but then always end with with mercy and, and, and grace to our souls. So, um, and um, yeah, so so that was that basically. And um, so let me, I just, um, I am actually going home uh, to, to to New England for uh, Christmas, so this will be the last time I'll, I'll see um, most of you, I, I imagine. So um, grace and mercy to, to all your souls for the Feast of the Lord's Nativity. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Um, just want to say, so the, the sacred monster actually would come to our seminary. Oh, yes. uh, so we got to know Father Taft, and yeah, he's uh, brilliant. Um, I do want to follow up, yeah, that we will build a tower, we'll put David in the tower with his choir. I think that would be very good. Didn't, didn't Constantinople have a sort of a raised area for the, for the choir? So it's yeah. traditional. Yeah. So towers, yeah, also the Tower of London. So you know, there you go. <laughs> Uh, we can imprison uh, naughty cantors in there who will sing the right tones. Um, I had uh, just one reflection. I noticed uh, during um, the great, f- uh, you know, just, and I'll open it up for questions, but during the great fast, we have the Sunday of the Last Judgment mm-hmm. before the great fast begins. So it seems like we have a, a similar thing uh, going on in Lent. Uh, and so that's why Father Thomas Hopko calls this the winter Pascha, because you know, the spring Pascha. But I did want to point out, and I wanted to make another plug for this, I think 98 to 99% of all of the texts you quoted do not come from the Divine Liturgy. So let me ask you this, if all you experience is the Divine Liturgy, how well, I mean, you're coming from the outside as a Latin, but if you just experience the Divine Liturgy, nothing else, uh, whether publicly or privately, whichever way, um, how well or how not well does one know their tradition? 
Well, I would, I would say this, that, 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 yeah, I mean, in any given day of the liturgical year in the Byzantine Rite, you've got, you know, the, the full text, which is ten stichera, four vespers, um, five apostica, the text of litia, if there's a proper litia, uh, and then you have the tropar, and then you've got, you know, the, the um, I don't even know the names for half of these things in English, but... Um, you got the canon, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, there's a massive body of material. Two of those items, the tropar and the contact, are the ones that show up in the Divine Liturgy. So yes, I mean, you're missing a huge portion of that. And I mean, a lot of these things are just incredibly, incredibly beautiful. So um, there's another one, which maybe we sort of talk about on some other occasion, but very briefly, which is that, for example, the canon of Holy Saturday, which is one of the most extraordinary pieces of poetry that's ever been written, is actually rewritten for um, December 24th. And again, it's that, that sort of liminal position. And, and, and it's not just that the pieces themselves are very beautiful, but there's also a very often very deep theological message that's sort of sent by the way they're arranged, the dates on, on which they're placed. And so, I mean, there are just bazillions of these, these, these things. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, it is definitely a, a, a tradition worth getting to know um, to the degree that it is possible. So, um, but, uh, you know, so does that make sense? Thank you. Does anyone have any questions for the uh, new monster? <laughs> the, uh, the Melkites have a shorter... Um, to be fast, is that correct? Why? Why is it different amongst different Byzantines? Um, are you talking in terms of the the, the, the fasting itself, or the arrangement? Yeah, this is this is a th- uh, probably under influence of the Syriac tradition, which my understanding is that they also come in kind of kind of late. But this is this has become a sort of de facto formalized thing that where theoretically it's supposed to start on November 15th. In reality, some people started on December 10th, right after, and then others have kind of have restricted even further to just the very end, um, basically Paramani and then a couple of days leading up to it. And so, but this is, and, and this is a long-standing thing in, in, the, in the history of, of the church generally that fasts keep getting sort of rolled back further and further and further to, you know, I mean, not, you know, have you heard of the famous Spanish indult? There's a thing called the Spanish indult where Pius V just wrote a bull to the Spanish saying, y'all don't have to fast from meat because you're y'all crusading. <laughs> and since you're crusading, you need to keep up your strength. So yeah, it doesn't worry about the whole meat. So like, it canceled all of the meat fasts. And this has been like a long-standing tradition. So I would suspect that the Melkites got the same thing. I have to say that, unfortunately, I am nowhere near as conversant with these traditions as I would like to be. Um, the reason why I can study the Byzantine Rite is because I learned Greek, unfortunately, quite some time ago. I don't speak any of the languages um, that any of the other rites are celebrated. And even, I mean, my, my Slavonic is like this much. And so um, the, I don't word like a word of Syriac. And unfortunately, um, most of these people have, been, have not really done all that much to put their stuff out there. So every time I go looking for something, I'm like, oh, maybe I could write something new about the Armenian Rite, nothing. There's very, very little out there. So, but anything else? When I was when I was growing up, my mother's side of the family is Portuguese, and they made a very big deal about Saint Martin's Feast. Oh, right. And I never really understood why, 
but does it have something to do with uh, did, did the La did the Latin advent? I mean, you mentioned that in some traditions it sort of began around that time. Do you think that that was a cultural holdover? Yeah. Which is Portuguese? Could that be the case? Yeah. Yeah, the, so the, the liturgy, which is called the Mozarabic Rite, which there's no reason why any of you should have heard of it. It's been basically a museum piece for the last over a thousand years, but um, was once the dominant liturgy in Spain. And the, the, the key day for the start of Advent is St. Martin's, whatever. St. Martin is on November 11th. Advent starts the day, the, the Sunday after it. And so, and it was the case for a really long time that um, monasteries particularly kept an informal fast. That is to say, it wasn't something that was regarded as mandatory and it wasn't considered part of the liturgy as it were. But yeah, it was very common to do a fast um, at least Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays starting with, you know, so the, the, the first Sunday of Advent was the, first Sunday, was the Sunday after St. Martin, and then they would keep it at least on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays in that period. So um, there's also an interest in terms of the climate of, of that part of the world, that um, there's a lot of different kinds of grapes that mature right around that time of the year. So St. Martin's was also a big day for making what they call, no, in Italian, they call novello wine, which is the first wine, the, the very first pressing. It's awful, by the way. So, like, it's just like, I went with one good bottle of Novello the entire time I ever lived there. So, um, but, but so yeah, it was also a big festival because there were certain things that would like just come to fruition at that time of year. The, um, the Novello wine, there's certain kinds of cheeses. So they kind of make a big festival out of it. Um, but yeah, it, 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 in, in terms of its relationship to the liturgy, it's, it's been tangential for a really, really long time, and a lot of these things are kind of just, you know, sort of slipped away. So, anything else? So, so you've just solved a lifelong puzzle. My family used to sing me a rhyme in Portuguese, and it's about St. Martin and how he was old and blind and carried a stick, which in Portuguese... Uh, is Pau, mm -hmm. and then the last line of the riff of the rhyme was it's a rhyme rather. The last line of it was, and he eats pound bread, vinho wine, and bacalhau, which is fish. Okay. And I'm like, why the bread and the fish? I get because fast, but why the wine? So I think you there just you let, see. Yeah. I told you, <laughs> very intelligent. He's just solved a lifelong riddle. Um, thank you very much. Um, if you're willing to do this again, I'm sure they would appreciate any knowledge you have about uh, the tradition. Sure, very glad to. And to educate them. Right. So. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks so much.